Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, and I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Sarah Van Gelder. Hello, Sarah. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So, folks, Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon. Learn more about the show at marchtwisdale.com, and you can also catch previous shows that you may have missed at my website. So, Sarah, why don't you go ahead and start us off by grounding my audience in who you are, what you do, give them a sense of all that. I'd be delighted. Thank you so much for having me, and I love Vashon Island, even though I haven't spent a lot of time there. My name is Sarah Van Gelder. I'm one of the founders of Yes Magazine, which we started 20 years ago. Uh, I've since moved on. I still write a column for Yes, but my project right now is People's Hub, which is focused on teaching people in local communities how to work together well, how to make themselves powerful, how to have an influence on the kind of society that we live in as a whole, but more particularly how to have an influence on the kind of community that they have. And this came out of a book I wrote called The Revolution Where You Live, Stories from a 12,000-Mile Journey Through a New America, which is, as it sounds, the stories of a road trip I took in the end of 2015, where I visited communities all over the country to learn about how they were making change. So just to dive in, because of course right now it's the beginning of 2018, your road trip was the end of 2015, and I'm curious as an aside how that road trip affected your perception of all that went down in 2016. Well, you know, it was it's interesting because it was before the election had really heated up, so I wasn't out there particularly looking at electoral topics. But I did choose to go into a lot of the places that, that are really on the margins of society. I felt like, you know, if, if the answers aren't coming from the power centers, maybe that's because people who are in places of power tend to be more wedded to the status quo. So mm-hmm. I thought maybe I'd go to the places more at the margins. So I went to places that, that wound up being a lot of the red states. I spent a lot of time in the Rust Belt, in the South, in Appalachia. I went to a number of different Native American reservations. And one of the things that I was so struck by was how much people felt left out, how many people, how how pervasive the poverty is and how hopeless it is and how long-term it's been. You know, coming from the Northwest, I'm sort of used to there being quite a bit of prosperity and then certainly major areas of poverty as well. But in a lot of these regions, you see very little of the prosperity and and a real sense of hopelessness. Now, you also wrote a book called This Changes Everything, which I actually picked up when I was at one of the Occupy rallies in Seattle. It seems like right now there's just a massive sea change in pretty much every direction you look. I'm not sure there's anything that's saying, hi, we're the steady place over here. Nothing's changing here. You know, it's like everything's up in the air. Do you want to talk a little bit about this real quick? Because it's such a handy easy-to-hold, quick read. Well, thank you. Yeah, Occupy Wall Street came along in response to how deep the, the people's sense of despair over inequality was. And, and things like uh, like being in debt, a lot of people take that on as a source of shame, as though there's something that they personally did wrong that got them into debt. Whereas for so many people, it's just the simple fact of going, trying to go to college and get an education so you can, can get a job or, or having a medical emergency or trying to, trying to start a business. There's so many ways in which we get into debt and so little our society and economy now is, 
is so much channeling the wealth to the top 1% that it's, it's increasingly hard for most people to do any of those things without, without really uh, uh, predatory lending and, and, um, and soul-crunching debt payments. Right. So I think Occupy yeah. Wall Street really helped to address that and say, you know what, this is not your fault. You don't have to feel shame. We can have a different kind of society. It doesn't have to be that kind of soul-crunching society. Let's look at what that would be like if we had had a more equitable world and one where everybody was treated with de- dignity and respect. So I think it was a profound time in, in our history. And some people think it's a failure because the occupation centers went away. But I think it actually had a long-lasting and profound effect on the conversation around things like inequality and debt. Oh, I completely agree. And I think what's really important is to recognize that what I think, how did you describe it? Um, you, when you were describing it, you described it as like almost like this really unique, amazing, you know, unusual type of thing. That's only, those thoughts were only unusual in this country. And if I understand correctly, Occupy Wall Street actually, I think, think came out of Canada. Well, there was a Canadian, a couple of Canadian people who, who called for it, who basically called for it and, and made this beautiful, evocative poster of a, of a girl dancing on the back of a bull. Right. And that, that was certainly one of the things that created that moment. But it also came out of what was happening with the, uh, with the Arab Spring and with what was going on in Europe and, and mm-hmm. the, um, some of the various social movements that were very much bottom-up social movements. They weren't ones run by the political parties or by the power elites. They were ordinary people saying, you know what, we want, to, we want something very different here. And some things that may be out of bounds on the part of the parties who believe that the political parties, they believe that, you know, that corporations should continue to have a great deal of power and big Wall Street banks should have a lot of power. And a lot of folks are saying, no, you know, that's not really working for us as in our lives, and it's also contributing to the destruction of our environment. So right. if we want to have any kind of a future, we, we actually, we the people actually have to have a say in what's most important. And, and that means really looking at the question of power and, and bringing power back to we the people, and that means bringing it back to local communities. I think it's important to always keep in mind, and this was talked about a lot during the election year, actually, is that the goals expressed by Occupy Wall Street and, and a number of other thinkers all over that we're hearing from in different ways, their goals that are already acted out and enjoyed and achieved in a number of other socialist democracies. And so that's the beauty of it, is that even as we in America look at these ideas and say, hey, we're going to do something new and different, and people go, yeah, but it's an experiment, it may not work. Instead, we can point to dozens of places and say, it's being done there, and it's working great. We're not actually conducting experiment. We want to shift, we want to upgrade, and catch up with many other countries in the world. So I really like to remind people of that when they start thinking, oh, but it's an experiment, and then the fear sets in. There's reasons to not be fearful, I think. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. So local power, um, empowerment of the people, you know, changing where we start to look for our solutions and answers. I think it's become very um, mainstream American to think, I'm going to live my life over here, and then those people over there who were elected into positions of political power will guide the nation, make important decisions, and that that's the only place where our power is seated. And yet, obviously, we have state power, we have county power, we have neighborhood power, right? Neighborhood uh, watch groups. We got power all over the place. Tell us some of your stories 
from your trip. Sure. Yeah, and I would just add to your list of kinds of power we have, we also have cultural power. We have the power to say what is and isn't acceptable. Mm. For example, right now we have this moment when women are saying the sexual harassment they've been subjected to is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. So those cultural moments also are very powerful, and those are very much things that we the people can influence. We We can determine what we're going to allow and what we're not going to allow, what's important to us and what we're not, you know, what's not important to us. Right. So I think we, we do forget that so much of what happens in Washington, D.C., we're the ones that make make it either possible or not possible. That's a so, very good point. Very good yeah. point. I love that. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. So, um, and, and just while we're, we're on that question of, of how does how does power at the local level matter, right. if you look at how Canada got single-payer health care, it wasn't because... Somebody at the top said, oh, this would be a really good policy. It was because the, there was a political party in the province of Saskatchewan that ran on that platform, and that platform alone, I believe. And they won because people could see the benefits of, of having single-payer health care, uh, which is basically like Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once it was enacted, other parties eventually won office, but the, but the policy was so popular that they, the other parties couldn't get rid of it. And then the rest of Canada started saying, wait a minute, we want this too. Mm. And now it's just taken for granted. Canadians have this. It's not a perfect system, but you can ask any Canadian if they'd rather have the U.S. system or their system, and there's no question about which they would choose. Right, right. So like in our system, it's sort of like states can lead in a way. I look at Washington State, and I say to myself, every single problem we face in the state of Washington is really identical to the problems that are being faced on the national level. And oftentimes I've said to people, if we cannot control our state government, then what makes us think we're going to be able to control the national? We should look at the state of Washington as our practice area. Let's clean up our problems. Let's become this glowing example and model of how to do things so much better. And then we can lead by example and other states can look over and go, oh my gosh, that looks awesome. And I've often talked about that as being a way of gradually influencing at the national level. That's that's absolutely right. And, And in addition, Washington is now part of this blue West Coast that is, um, that is creating kind of a, a kind of a fossil fuel barrier to right. increasing the amount of fossil fuel extraction here right. and shipping to Asia. Yep, yep. And this is huge, you know, at a time when our national government is refusing to acknowledge even the existence of human-caused climate change, that the entire western seaboard of our country is saying, well, no, we're just not going to do this anymore. Right. Right. And that's one of the stories I could tell you from my road trip. I was I was actually started out here from the Pacific Northwest, and I've been hearing the stories about the proposed coal terminal up in Bellingham that the mm-hmm. Lummi tribe had been working so hard to stop. And I've been been following that story, and I got really curious about why there would suddenly be the need for the largest coal export terminal in the whole country at a time when so many people are saying coal is over. Mm-hmm. Why would there be a need for so much new capacity? And I found out that there was a proposal for a brand-new strip mine, coal strip mine, out in southeast Montana. Mm-hmm. So I had... Uh, Isn't that I, the one I, that, I, that that guy, there's um, a super-duper billionaire guy who I think is behind is behind that? Well, Warren Buffett there. and his... Yeah. 
his uh, Burlington Northern Railroad. I mean, he doesn't control. He owns a large chunk of Burlington Northern Railroad, but he doesn't control oh, how they operate. Okay, but okay. nonetheless, he is a part owner of, uh, or a major owner of Burlington Northern Railroad. They were one of the companies, along with Arch Coal and some other companies, that wanted to build this, to, to do this huge strip mine. Okay. Um, so one of the things that I had decided to do when I decided to take this trip was to, to travel in a little truck and camper so I could go anywhere without having to worry about whether there was an airport or a train station nearby. Mm-hmm. So I drove out to southeast Montana and stayed on the northern Cheyenne Reservation with a woman by the name of Ariana Buffalo Spirit and interviewed people in the tribe about how they felt about this new coal mine that was going to go in very close to the reservation, not actually on the reservation, but nearby. Mm-hmm. And then I learned that some people from the Lummi tribe had actually carved a totem pole. The House of Tears carvers had carved a totem pole and were bringing it out to the Northern Cheyenne tribe as a gift because they recognized that both tribes were on both ends of this particular controversy, that the coal would come from the territory of one tribe and it would end up in, uh, exported via the, the Lummi tribe's territory. Right. Um, so I was there when they had the ceremony to welcome that totem pole to the reservation. I interviewed folks from the Lummi tribe, ranchers who who are also working very closely with the tribes on opposing this huge coal mine mm-hmm. because it would be so disruptive to their way of life as well. And it was such a fascinating experience to hear people, especially, you know, a lot of people assume that ranchers must be Republicans and they must be Donald Trump supporters. But what the people I talked to talked about how the land and the water were sacred to them, that they, they recognized that Native people had been there much longer. But they said, you know, we inherited this from our forefathers, too, and we have a responsibility to future generations to take good care of it, to pass it along intact. Mm-hmm. And the language was so similar to what the Native people were saying. You know, they had that deep sense of responsibility deep sense of the sacredness of the land and the water. And because they had that level of commitment to the place where they lived, they were willing to do all the hard work of reading those long environmental impact statements and traveling to the state capitol to testify and just coming back year after year to push to keep this coal mine from going in. Mm-hmm. When I got home, I learned that they had won, that they yeah. did prevent that coal mine from going in. And then I also learned that the Lummi tribe had won, and that the coal terminal was also canceled because the Army Corps of Engineers recognized their sovereign right to make decisions over over land that would and, and water that would affect their treaty rights. You know, it's really interesting is that I I had been hearing about it during the fight stage, the resistance stage, um, and then but I wasn't tracking it as one of my like top three issues where I'm chasing the information down. It was more like uh, my antennas were up and I was aware. And then it went quiescent. And I remember thinking, well, okay, it's sort of quiet now. Why is it quiet? Um, And I found it fascinating that the media coverage of those achievements, those successes, those results was remarkably less than the media coverage of the potential of it happening and the resistance. It was sort of like... They just wanted people to not notice that these small, localized groups had actually been able to affect a a very powerful change to what had been proposed by the more traditional power sources. 
Well, I think media also is always looking for ways to highlight conflict because they believe that's that that's what um, readers want. Yeah. But I think the point that you're making that that so few people probably even realize that these small, relatively powerless groups of people were able to stop these huge projects. You know, so few people mm-hmm. see the victory there, and and it breeds this kind of cynicism. Oh, we can never, we can never win. We can never stand up to these powerful forces. Mm-hmm. But in fact, people do, and they win all the time. The reality of what's going on and the narrative that we hear so often, they can be extremely different. And yet a lot of people will just sort of listen to the news and say, that's what happened today. And that's what I love about Yes Magazine. I've loved you guys since I first ran into you about 19 years ago, right after you guys got started. Here is an example of all the news that isn't being covered by the mainstream media. There's so much, quote, news out there, and we see 1% of this little sliver that convinces us the world is this way. And there's all this other uncovered news, and you guys do a great job of, of covering all the other stuff. Oh, thank you. We do what we can. I mean, yes, it's one small nonprofit news organization, and it's it really is important that the investigative news sources are out there. There is a really important role for the kind of journalism that, with with real rigor and real che- fact checking, gives us a reality check on some of the things that are happening nationally and internationally. And there's so much else going on, also. Right, right, right. I want to remind folks that. The book, This Changes Everything, and also at least one copy of Yes Magazine will be at the Vashon Bookshop. There's a comfy chair right by the window, and there's my little prose poetry and purpose display that they have next to a nice little lamp. And it's a perfect place to relax and take a look at the work of my authors. So folks, if you're just joining us, my name is March Twisdell, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. Today I'm talking with Sarah Van Gelder, who is one of the co-founders of Yes Magazine over there on Bainbridge Island. Alrighty, so... Back to the interview. So you have shared one story from your road trip, which I I would like to say to everyone out there listening, isn't that great news to hear that? Because I had not heard the total final outcome, but we've got a, was it, it was Wyoming or Montana where they were going to do the coal strip mine? It was Montana. It was the Otter Creek Mine in Montana. Got it. So Montana, um, what, what I like is you mentioned for example, that um, you had the tribes and you also had ranchers and there's this sort of general assumption people would make that those groups might be opposed to each other. I just interviewed a couple months ago a gentleman who moved to the island who wrote a book about how environmentalists and farmers should really be like the best of allies when it comes to lobbying for better policy. And um, I love the point you just made as well. In so many cases, when we think two groups have to oppose one another and can't find common ground, the exact opposite is very often true. Do you um, have another story perhaps from your – I mean, you went all over the country. What's another story you'd like to share? Oh, gosh, there's so many. I know, right? Um, Well, let me talk a little bit about livelihoods because there are so many stories about factories closing down and people – suddenly finding themselves jobless. And I visited one place in Chicago where that had happened, except that in this case the workers uh, were, were laid off without being paid their back pay, and so they occupied the factory. And eventually the owners agreed to sell the factory and let them to, to another owner who could continue to employ them. 
Um, so they kept their jobs, but they realized that this could very easily happen again. Mm-hmm. So they well, hold on, wait, wait, real quick. So you're saying that a factory, a business owned by certain people dis- was maybe having economic distress, laid off its employees, and owed them money and was not going to pay them the money they owed? Correct. Yeah, they owed them back pay, and they had severance pay and vacation pay and so forth owed to them. So in addition to occupying the factory, did they also pursue their legal options to basically sue the company? Because that's got to be illegal. I'm not sure if they brought lawyers into it or not, but they did win in the end the right to their back pay, and the new owners honored that. But then the new owners decided to shut down also. Oh, wow. But this time, the workers had had looked around a little bit, including been to Argentina and seen what had happened there with occupied factories, and they realized they could run the factory themselves. Mm -hmm. So this time, when the owner decided to shut it down, they occupied it and negotiated a buyout. So now they own the factory. Now they're running it as a worker co-op. So I asked them, how are you able to do this when this other company was not able to? And they said, well, one thing is that we don't have to pay any executives these huge salaries. Right. You know, we, we figure it out ourselves. Right. And they say another thing is that they used to, as, as factory workers, they used to find all sorts of places they could improve production processes. But they said, you know, the managers weren't interested in what we had to say. They say, right. no, you just do it our way. So now when they see a way to improve things, they can just do it. They can just make it happen. So it's like um, you've added a layer of cream in your cake and there's these people who are just sitting around sucking or siphoning resources out of society when if we just paid directly and intentionally, that layer wouldn't need to be there. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a lot of – that's one of the mechanisms that that contributes to inequality and um, making it harder and harder for poor middle-class people to just get by while other people are becoming billionaires with more money than they can even conceive of. Right. And it's so unhealthy. There's so many ways that it really – it really undermines the quality of life in our in our society for everybody. So this factory is a beautiful role model for other groups. Have they um, formed a committee that travels around and talks to other groups of workers in different factories, or, or have how's that happened? Well, not a lot because they're mostly, you know, people who have basically just just been factory workers and are now struggling to make this new factory work. It's called New Era era windows mm-hmm. you can buy their windows um which are very energy efficient if you want to support them they are part of the cooperative movement so other co-ops look for ways to support them just as they look for ways to buy from other organizations that are co-ops and the community right. has also been very supportive and the la- labor union movement so that's right. kind of an interesting connection too is that um that the union movement helped them to to make the transition to be being worker owned and in cincinnati there's a whole cluster of now of new groups starting up that are unions, but I mean, uh, co-ops, worker-owned co-ops, with the involvement of the labor unions, because they've, they've gotten tired of fighting all these losing battles with corporations that just want to move jobs to wherever they're, they're the cheapest. Mm-hmm. And instead, you know, the, the unions are saying, you know, what we, what, we, what we really need to do is own our own jobs. We need to have right. our members own their own jobs, own their own cooperatives. Right. So they're actually doing that. The unions, the co-ops, the faith groups. There's an mm-hmm. Old Testament theologian there in Cincinnati who's talking about what it really means, a jubilee year, and freeing the slaves and relieving the dead. And so the faith community there has gotten involved, and social justice people have gotten involved who are tired of seeing, especially folks in the, in the African-American community that have been 
systematically left out of the economy, looking right. for ways that the people in the African-American communities as well can own their own jobs and own their own economy. So, if so there's think- this wonderful cluster of activity happening in Cincinnati as people really start coming to terms with what a a more just and more democratic economy would look like. Right, right. And, and if we think about it, um, we get to make the decision about whether we continue to sort of worship the existing structure, which wants us to believe it is the only option. Oh, corporations are the only way things can be done. Therefore, you should be fighting tooth and nail to try to, you know, make us better and, and we'll resist you. And, and that just keeps people busy, but it still maintains corporate control. And you can, in a way, turn around and say, we're just going to actually starve you. We're going to ignore you. We're going to go sideways. We're going to do it a different way. And we're going to make you irrelevant. So if the unions say, look, we're still going to fight this good fight for the people who do work for corporations, it's important, but we're going to also devote time over here to building and growing a new way of life, as you said, livelihood, where instead we're working hand-in-hand with, you know, um, employee-owned businesses. And one of the other examples of how history proves this can be extremely effective is when we look at the immigrant groups that came to the North American continent and that they stuck with each other in a way. So like um, uh, people will talk about how the Jewish community, when it arrived in the New World, they worked together and they were able to control um, and become powerful in basically clothing and materials and cloth and things like that. Um, You had other groups that came over and they're like, we're going to do this type of tile and we're not going to, we're only going to work within our family groups or whatever, you know, the Italians, the Irish, whatever. So historically, entire industries have ended up being largely controlled by ethnic groups because they arrived and they then did what you were saying earlier, which is that network of um, co-ops they worked with each other. Now, that was an ethnic base, but imagine if it just becomes a, um, like a human rights equity base of people who are like, we're going to work with each other, support each other, and then it ends up making the, the bad businesses that are not being really fair, they get left out in the cold. That's right. There, <clears throat> there's so many opportunities to do that. Another place I saw it happen was in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, where there's a, a grocery store closed down in, in the African-American community creating what's called a food desert, you know, an area where there is no good grocery store. Only access to food is through convenience stores that, right. that sell a lot of sugar and fat and really unhealthy food. Right. Or for people who have a car, they can drive a long distance, but a lot of low-income people, just it's just a real uh, difficulty. So the black community got together and formed a food co-op. They called the the Renaissance Food Co-op. This is the city, Greensboro is the city where the four young college students back in 1960 did a sit-in at the Woolworth lunch counter where they weren't even served food. Wow. And it took months of people sitting in before Woolworths was finally desegregated. And now they're actually going to be owning the lunch counter, which is going to be full of wonderful, healthy food that is culturally relevant, as well as as owning the entire grocery store. And they did that by forming a cooperative, by selling shares. Each of them own, is a part owner of this co-op, and mm-hmm. they're very proud of it. They're very proud that they have this space, and they can meet their own needs. They don't have to put up with this terrible, unhealthy food that's that's all you can get in a lot of low-income communities. And they've created local jobs 
for themselves that are in service to their own community. It's like a win-win-win. That's right. Yep. There's so, there's so many things that, that are that are just um, that just build a sense of community, build a sense of connection, build a sense of power. Um, it, it is, as you say, a win-win-win. So let's talk a little bit about People's Hub. Oh, but first, actually, folks, um, I'm not going to, obviously, I could spend three hours talking with Sarah, and we still would have more to talk about. So I want to make sure that everyone knows how to go out with their computer and find all sorts of interesting stuff, because, Sarah, you have a column now with Yes Magazine, correct? That's right. I write a column called The Revolution Where You Live, which is also the name of my book. Right. And both are about these kinds of local initiatives, how people are making things happen where they live. Right. So, folks, Yes Magazine is sort of this place where um, everything you read about makes you feel like, oh, my gosh, yes, I want to be doing that. We can do that. It's, it's a positive-focused magazine. Great for everyone. So I recommend you check it out. And then where else can they find your column if they don't actually, like, have a chance to flip through this lovely magazine? Where do they go to find you? Yeah, I have my own website, revolutionwhereyoulive.org. And it includes excerpts from the book. It includes the the foreword that Danny Glover wrote for me. Yeah. And it includes also my current column. Oh, good. Okay. I encourage you to check it out. If people want to have regular um, little injections of exciting positivity, they can go to revolutionwhereyoulive.org. Correct? Correct. Yep, that's it. Okay, brilliant. Okay, good. So... People's Hub. I am so excited about People's Hub. I love it. Tell everyone about it. Thank you. Yeah. So this came out of this road trip. I was finding all these wonderful stories of what people were doing, and then I'd go to the next community, and I'd tell them about what I'd just seen, and they'd say, oh, I want to meet those people, or or else they'd say, I want to learn how to do that. And I'd think, you know, that should be so easy with the Internet. They wouldn't even have to travel. I should just be able to introduce themselves on Skype or something. Mm-hmm. So that was that was the initial impetus for it. And then we had this uh, this election outcome. And suddenly you see millions of people coming out to the Women's March. But then afterwards, they're going home and they're saying, you know, I realized I can't outsource my activism. I can't just hope that somebody at the national level is going to take care of stuff for me and I can just write a check or sign a petition. I need to actually step up. Mm-hmm. And so as people started stepping up, they realized that getting involved in your community is important, and it's not something we're born knowing how to do. It actually (laughs) takes some skills. How do you have a good meeting where everybody feels heard and and where you have a decision and you're ready to move forward? How do you deal with conflicts that inevitably come up? How do you reach across divides and reach out to people in your community who you may not know very well? Perhaps they speak a different language or they come from a different ethnic group. How do you actually make things work where you live? And so that's what People's Hub is going to be doing, is, is helping people overcome those kinds, of, those kinds of barriers and feel really empowered to move ahead and make change where they are, because we just believe that that's, that's our best hope. Things in, in Washington, D.C. are in such a mess right now, and most of us have very little access to what happens there, although it is still important to be calling our members of Congress and so forth. But most of us, if we start where we live, we can actually shift the culture and shift the power dynamics feel more connected where we live, and we can start building power locally 
that can change things where we live as well as changing things on the national scale. And as we do that, the people around us notice because it's being talked about in their local paper or the posters are up at their favorite cafe, and maybe they come to an event, and then they start to think, wow, that's really cool. I didn't think that you know, just a normal, regular person could do something like that. So that the leading by example is always so much more powerful than we sometimes think it is. Yeah, I agree with that. And also, people want to be involved. I think, you know, there's this sort of myth that that you know nobody wants to get involved in their community or that they're apathetic. I think people do get turned off if there's a lot of conflict or a lot of of difficulties. But I think people are also really hungry to be connected to people in their own communities. Mm-hmm. I think the, the mm-hmm. level of isolation, there's actually the, the former Surgeon General under Obama has recently talked about loneliness in our culture being at epidemic rates because people, people, the number of people that most, of, most folks can trust has gone down to, to such a small number that most, most people are just feeling really alone and really isolated, and that, that goes along with feeling powerless. And once just a few people get together and say, okay, we, we care about this thing, we are going to do something about it, that shifts everything. It shifts their sense of isolation. It shifts the sense of powerlessness. And, in fact, they do have power when they start creating that sort of momentum. And I don't think it's just about um, power. I think it's about trust. And and I already had these thoughts, but I also back in December spoke with um, Christian Albrecht from Denmark. And he was talking about levels of trust in different countries. He worked on his PhD in the subject, written, you know, a book, blah, blah, blah. And one of the things that I have, I think is sort of endemic when we talk about that isolation is that when I travel to Europe, um, I find that when I'm in countries that have high trust levels, people are out and about in public um, very, 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 very much. They engage with each other, their neighbors, very much. There's a correlation, high trust levels, high engagement. When I think about the suburb that I lived in on the Sammamish Plateau when I first moved here, and I found it to be a social desert. I couldn't get anyone in the community to have a block party. I No one used their front doors. They drove in their garage doors. You, I didn't get the name. No one knew anybody. The person who we bought the house from had been there for six years when the development was first created. And the three neighbors who talked to me about the previous owner, all they had to say about Joe was that he had the nicest lawn in the neighborhood. (laughs) And I'm not joking. Stepford Wives joking I am not doing. This was reality. And they said he must have spent 20 hours a week on that lawn. You're lucky. You have the best lawn in the neighborhood. And that was it. I never saw them again. They disappeared into their homes. And I think when people engage or when they don't engage, what's what's going on there is you don't engage maybe because you're scared. You're going to find out that you don't have enough in common. Maybe, you know, the neighbor and you are going to have a major disagreement. You don't want that neighbor to hate you. So you just avoid them. So on one hand, I think the avoidance comes from not knowing. And then because we don't know, it's easy, of course, oh, well, that family down the street, oh, gosh, they don't speak English. You know, they're, they're, maybe they're illegal immigrants. No, Tommy, you can't go play with their kids. And now because there's no engagement, there's no friendship, there's no building of trust. Whereas once we start to work with people and get to know them, I think 95% of the time we find that we really like other people. That they're really cool. So friendships and community 
are just waiting for us to step out and engage and discover. I think you're absolutely right. And that was that was one of the, the takeaways from my road trip as well, is I'd, when I visited places where people were gathered for the simplest thing, like having a meal together or celebrating a harvest, there was so much joy in those spaces. I was so struck by that because so many other places were sort of like what you described, were kind of joyless, kind of bleak, you know, the, the right. kind of isolated person in the shopping mall or you know, but but when people were actually coming out of their homes and hanging out together, mm-hmm. and when they had a common project to work on together, there was just so much fun about that. You lived in co. Person, sorry, you, sorry, you lived in co-housing, correct? Yes, I uh, was one of the founders of uh, Winslow Co-housing on Bainbridge. There we go. Okay, well, I came out to Winslow a couple of times. Um, I was one of the founders of Duwamish Co-housing in West Seattle. Uh huh. And one of my favorite things about co-housing was work parties. Like twice a year, we'd have a work party where everyone would come out and we were going to like, you know, do all the landscape work during an entire day. And I just remember, here it is, it's a day devoted to work, to labor, but my entire community is laboring together in a united fashion. Those were my favorite days of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you see another side of, of people that are your neighbors. You see how they, how they are in a different situation. You see how much you can get done together. You feel like you're working for a common purpose, that everybody's contribution matters, all of those things. Yeah, Absolutely. and there's a togetherness. You're doing something together. You have a shared goal that feels great. And then you share, and then you break bread together. I mean, come on. Like, what could be more awesome than dinner in the evening? So, okay, um, let's see here. Station identification. Hey, folks, real quick, because some of you might have just tuned in. In fact, it's really cool. Every time I go to the grocery store, there's this one really nice guy who I love. He works in the produce section, and he tends to drive to work, and he leaves his house around like 1130, and he heads to work, and my show runs from 11 to 12 on Saturdays. So he always catches just a portion of the show, and he'll like flag me down and be like, okay, where can I go hear the other part of that show? Because I only got half of it. It was really interesting. So for those of you who are in your car right now and you're just landing on your radio dial, I'm March Twisdale. You're listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose on Voice of Vashon, 101.9 FM. And I'm talking today with Sarah Van Gelder, who is one of the co-founders of Yes Magazine and an author of, a co-author of This Changes Everything, which is about the Occupy Movement as well as currently the developer, one of the developers of People's Hub, and we're going to talk about all that. But if you missed the beginning, you can go to my website, marchtwisdale.com. Check the podcast. You can hear her interview in full and all the previous interviews you may have missed in the past. So we're going to get back to the interview now. We have about, mm, about 12 more minutes, and I wanted to make sure that we touch upon the question of building bridges and relationships with the natural world. What are your thoughts on that? Well, some of it goes back to that other story I mentioned um, from the revolution where you live about people who fought so hard to protect their land from a coal mine in one case and from a coal export terminal in another, and how much that deep relationship with the natural world is what created the impetus to do that, created the energy, created the passion to do that. So I think there's something about about not the abstraction of the environment, but something about the specificity of the particular animals, the particular birds, the particular trees or fish or 
wildlife that live where you live and the relationship you establish with that particular ecosystem is really different than sort of the abstraction of the environment. Right, and right, right. What I find is that people people who spend time in a place, and especially children, it's almost like it's hardwired in. Mm-hmm. They just fall in love with a the place. They just become emotionally attached. And we have this, you know, this sort of odd notion that once you get mature or once you really understand progress, you won't care about all that and you'll be okay with it getting paved over or trees getting clear cut. But I think deeply in our soul, we do care. We care deeply. Oh, yeah, I don't think that's true at all. I think if you grow up in a suburb where there's not true nature, there's just, you know, plant, you know, trees in certain places and lawns and all that where you don't actually have a natural world to fall in love with. I could understand that person being disjointed enough to maybe not care, but every child I know who's grown up on Vashon Island, the forest, the beaches, the, these deeply natural environments matter to them in a, in a huge way. But our, but our culture tells us we shouldn't care, that, that's, um, you know, that progress has got to move forward. Oh, so I think part of it is just, yeah. it's just being really willing to acknowledge that where we live matters, and that actually includes, right. I think, a lot of kids in urban landscapes. They care about even if it's just a few feet of, of natural spaces where they live or a park nearby. They, they're the birds that, that maybe visit the balcony. You know, there's, right. There is something that's, that's deeply ingrained in us to care about where we live. And so then the next step is to say, okay, what am I going to do about that? How do, I, how do I have a relationship of integrity with the natural world? And that means taking care of it. It means being cared for by it. That's where all of our resources come from. Everything we eat, the air we breathe, the water, everything that right. nourishes us it comes at some point from the natural world. So it means accepting and feeling gratitude and expressing gratitude for the way that Mother Earth nurtures us. But there's a reciprocal relationship implied there that we need to also take care of her um, if, if for no other reason than a selfish reason that eventually Mother Earth will no longer be able to take care of us if we don't do that. But also I think for many people it, it goes far deeper than that. Well, I think we end up with um, – we there's two two factors. One is the cognitive and the other is the emotional attachment. Um, it might be true that there are some kids out there who really love that strip of lawn in their suburb. Um, it's totally possible. But I grew up in so many different places, moved constantly. And um, the places that I will not return to intentionally, because it's too painful, are the places that were close to buffer zones of true nature, um, giant bluffs that I know right now are covered in apartments, right? Um, and, and, and that's because of an emotional thing. It's not that logically or cognitively I'm aware of the losses because I'm not actually an environmental scientist enough to even fully recognize all that. But I loved, you know, as I just got on my bike, I left my house, I rode off into the bluffs, I laid around in the grass, I heard the bugs, I watched the birds. It was my escape, it was where my my, my life was lived mostly because you don't every eight months just pick up a bunch of fresh new friends when you're in fifth grade or seventh grade or eighth grade or whatever. It's a challenge. And so nature was my solace. And so in a way, the question is, how do we generate the powerful emotional bonds that will then trigger the cognitive thinking of that adult later in life? 
Because I don't think without the emotion that the cognition is going to come along as strongly. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people already have it, and, and it's just a question of recognizing it. It's sometimes environmentalists don't want to recognize hunters as having that bond, and yet they do, and the same yeah. with fly fishers. So people have a d- different ways that they experience it and different ways that they express it. But in a lot of cases, all we have to do is remember. You know, with some people it's their pet. With some other people it's the right. cattle on their ranch. You know, whatever it is, people have. have I One of my, my really interesting uh, ahas was visiting a rancher, a different rancher than, than I had talked to about the coal mine, uh, this was a, a guy who lived in a different part of Montana, but his his big interest was that he had come to understand that the grass that his cattle relied on would be far healthier if it had deeper root systems mm-hmm. and if it was treated via organic methods rather than the sort of commercial uh, uh, soil enhancements that, right. that corporations sell. And he also realized that that if the the microbial activity that is naturally a part of a healthy soil, if that can be enhanced, not only would there be more grass for his cattle, but it would in, it would sequester carbon out of the atmosphere. Mm. But actually, be a genuine form of reducing carbon, which and there there aren't very many of those. There's there's reforestation, mm-hmm. and there's healthy grasslands, and if. If you do those things right, you actually can get carbon out of the atmosphere, and you can address that that um, right. climate question from from that side of things. So he was on fire about doing that. He was mm-hmm. on fire about the idea that that uh, grassland could be that healthy, and that the root systems could go deep into the earth and break up the rocks and get access to nutrients that way. Mm-hmm. And that that instead of every year our grasslands creating pollution into the into the waters and into the air that they could actually be a source of the, of the solution. Fundamentally, we protect what we love, right? So if we can intentionally think about what we want our new generations to fall in love with and what we want them to care about, then, you know, that why do, why do we have a driving desire to protect our child, but, you know, a child the next state over matters so much less to us or something. It's because we love our kid, but we don't necessarily love the complete stranger's child. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so fascinating the impact that the parenting community has on the future of the world because they are generating the fundamental um, internal drives of an entire generation. That's right. And, and, you know, there's a lot, to, a lot to deal with with how much screen time kids are now engaged in and how how much that can sort of distance themselves from their own bodies as well as from the natural world. But kids that spend time outside with a parent or with a caregiver who is enjoying that time, those kids tend to be the ones that will have a lifelong commitment to the natural world. Yeah, my we had chickens. Only recently did we um, stop having chickens. So for about a decade we've had chickens. And my younger son is already sort of an animal person just naturally. But he really loves chickens. I mean, the number of hours he would just he would just go out into the chicken field, you know, the the village is what we called it. And they had range. They had the whole five acres to range, but there was a village area that was extra protected in the evenings against raccoons. And he grew up, I mean, just babies, mamas and babies would crawl on him and, and fall asleep in his lap. And we're talking deep connection with these animals. So even though now he plays a lot of computer games because all of his friends are on Skype, they're all scattered all over the island in their houses. But instead of driving to meet each other, they just get on and play games on the computer, right? Even so, in between, he'll have these videos of like, you know, 
last night. It was a, a video of um, a particular, it's, it's the flightless parrot that lives in New Zealand. Unbelievably gorgeous creature. And I walked by and I was like, wait a minute. Is that that flightless bird that lives in New Zealand? He's like, yeah, it's the blah, 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 which I can't remember now. So he's sitting there in between games where it's, you know, like these military games he's playing with his friends. And he's watching a video about this beautiful green chicken-like bird <laughs> in New Zealand. So, you know, I, I think we have this, this um, the first 12 years matter so much in the lives of our children. That's right. I think, you know, and I think the, the environmental education in schools, a lot of it gets very policy heavy, and I think one of the one of the most inspiring things I read when I was when I was editing Yes Magazine is about people who take little kids out with cardboard and paint and have them become birds, not just study birds, but actually make their own wings and go flapping around in a in a prairie and 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 pretending to make nests and pretending to be birds, and mm-hmm. then they get very interested. Well, how how do the birds eat? And you know, how do they make their nests? And which one is this? Which colors? You know, and then they start getting really curious. But they they need to be engaged in a really physical way with the natural world, not just mm-hmm. an abstract way. And and as much as there are tons of environmental problems that that kids do need to understand at some point. It can also be overwhelming if it's just one environmental disaster after the next that they're taught about. Right. I think you're what you said about we protect what we love is really important, and giving them a chance to fall in love with the natural world before bombarding them with all the trauma and the tragedy, I think is a really important piece of that. Yeah. Oh, I know, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay, so um, one of the theme for 2018 has been sort of like um, it's either a blend of how did we get here? So some of my guest authors are talking about what's happened in the past from policy, whatever it is, that has created this world because we are the result of, of the past. And then the other side of it, which is, okay, we're here, period, now exists. What can we do? What is actionable? So you obviously have a ton of ideas in this area, but why don't you go ahead and just as the show comes to a close, share with our listening audience um, your thoughts around finding actionable opportunities. Because I love Joan Baez's um, quote, action is the antidote to despair. Mm-hmm. Yes, so, absolutely. Go for and it. My, my book, The Revolution Where You Live, actually ends with 101 ways to reclaim local power. Because I just think that is so important. There's so many things that people can do, and what I, when people ask me, well, how, how do I decide? What do I do? What I usually say is, you know, I, think about what, what, where your passion is. What do you care deeply about where you live? And find just two or three or four other people who care about that same thing. They might already be organized in a group, so then you can join that group, or they might not, and then you can call them together and say, you know what, we all care about this thing where we live. Let's do something about it. And that simple decision of a, of a small group of people to do something that's based on something they care deeply about, that's very powerful. So that's what I suggest. I don't think there is one answer. There's so many things that need our attention right now from, from the state of the natural world to making sure that everyone in our community is included, that, that immigrants or refugees or people of color, any particular group is not excluded. I, I think we have huge things we can do on, on that on that note, on, on making livelihoods available to everyone. There's so many things that we can do. And, and in the end, I think the important thing is to start where we are and where our heart leads us. 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yes, absolutely. You've been listening to my interview with Sarah Van Gelder, and you can learn about all sorts of cool things that she is helping to drive forward in the world at revolutionwhereyoulive.org. Okie doke, folks. And um, thank you so much for listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose here on Voice of Eshon, 101.9 FM. You can always share the show with people who live out of our radio range at marchtwisdale.com. Just go to the podcast section. Thank you so much for listening to my show where my guests share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time.